Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. All right, you guys. Put your hands together for Matthew Kaye. Yay. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks to Melissa and Christine and Skylight for having me. Um, I tried to organize a basketball game when I was in high school one time and then never organized anything ever again, so I can only imagine how hard it is to coordinate these events. Um, I am going to read a little bit from my newest collection of poems uh, titled Catacombs of the Heart. It's a little bit exactly uh, what it sounds like, kind of a repository of things I've come across in my day-to-day -day life. And then I'll introduce Melissa, our guest of honor, and the two of us will sit down and have a little chat about writing and her book, her process, all that stuff. Anyhow, thanks again for being here. I know it's Los Angeles on a Friday night, and you're here at a bookstore. This is really cool. All right. My mother is the Statue of Liberty. Dragging her body out of the Buick, grocery bags cradled in her arms, eyeshadow matching the half circles under her eyes, she shuffles to the front door, wedges it ajar with her foot. Her apron covered in coffee, mustard, some sloppy Joe sauce, the blue plate special on Thursdays at the diner. Setting her purse down, she shuts her eyes, grabs what she can of blackness, then asks about my day, asks my brother the same, asks about our spelling and math tests, then asks dad about his truck and if he was able to find work at the Hy-Vee on I-80. With one hand, she works off her apron, mutters in a whisper that she can't believe she wore it home, then funny enough puts it aside as she prepares a dinner of elbow noodles and ground beef. No one asks how her day was, and even if we did, she would smile and say good. Why don't you get washed up? You finish homework? Want to read together later? Checked out a book at the small branch. Her back hunched, she starts the burner, and I already know the rest of her hour. Get supper ready, set the table, carry out the dish in red oven mitts, call for us to get to the table. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses before setting the casserole down and holding out her hands to say grace. Hell. I'm not so sure that hell exists, but I do know that it must be like a day's in in Tampa, a Sunday at Costco, Black Friday at Best Buy, the comment section on YouTube, a nine-hour layover in Atlanta, New York subways in August, a Del Taco bathroom stall, the quiet of a widow's home, a children's hospital, dusty attic toys, driving away from the vets with just a leash, an EBT card being declined, a little girl in high heels for the first time, a kid's balloon slipping from his grip, election ads, an abandoned tire swing on an unkept limb, the Santa talk, the erosion of a glacier, week-old roadkill, the permanence of the past, the brightness of a hospital room, people who don't know their worth, hashtags, Christmas trees on the 26th, the 11 o'clock news, training bras, the last page of a perfect book, airport goodbyes, the trash can after Thanksgiving, the flash of an AR-16, a crop duster's chemicals, migrants who want nothing more than safety, an Ethiopian boy's sharp, exposed ribs. Something light for your Friday. Oh, thank you. An applause break, sweet of you. Emojis are ruining the world. I worry that the more we use happy faces, eggplants, balloons, and thumbs up, the more we revert back to hieroglyphics. The more we pass on articulating sentiment, press pictures instead of swirling in their meaning. The more emojis pepper our prose, the more we use different colored hearts, the more our real ones, all four chambers of them, begin to atrophy. 
If I were to die unexpectedly, please delete my Google search history. How do I know if a pineapple is ripe? How hard is it to count cards? How many stars are on the Walk of Fame? How many stars are there in the sky? How long do stars live? Where do I buy seaweed for sushi? Who the hell published Mein Kampf? Who pierced Shakespeare's ear? Why did Shakespeare have a pierced ear? How do you pronounce hors d'oeuvre? Is it bad that I haven't seen Star Wars? Is Han Solo in Star Wars or Star Trek? Does sour cream go bad? How much longer does OJ have to serve? What's the best place to buy a pug? How long do pugs live? Ways to tell a mango is ripe. Is Billie Jean King still alive? Best place in LA for a donut. How do I get a six pack? How do I buy my own weed? How do I grow my own weed? Why is my dog's stomach black? Why is my tongue black? Can weed make your tongue go black? Can Pepto-Bismol make your tongue go black? Why is my girlfriend pissed with me? When is Mother's Day? Why is my mother pissed with me? When is Father's Day? Why do men have nipples? Why is my tortoise swimming upside down? What happens when you swallow gum? How do I get rid of Internet Explorer? Where does Danny DeVito live? Does whiskey have medical benefits? Can you wear cowboy boots with a suit? What do I wear to an invite that says garden casual? What are the Golden Girl lyrics? If her pupils dilate, does that mean she likes me? What does tergiversate mean? How do you tie a bow tie? How do you make tamales? Where do you buy good tamales? Are Geminis and Capricorns a good fit? Where is prostitution legal? How expensive is a prostitute? How expensive is a Vegas prostitute? Is God real? Is God out there? Does God hear me? Does God love me? Does he hate me? How can I get him to hear me? Are you God? Are you his middleman? Can you reach out to him? Can you tell him to listen to me? Can you talk to him? And when you do, can you not mention the prostitute thing? Thank you. All right. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Melissa Mathewson. Um, it's very cool because we went to school together in the snowy little town of Montpelier, Vermont, and got to know each other just for one semester. But it's always really cool to see people succeed in the literary world, and especially people that you got to know when probably this stuff was kind of, kind of like being shaped. And um, on top of that, it's just a really good book. You know, I would be here in the audience even if I wasn't on stage because I really adored this book was happy that she was coming to LA. So, Melissa Mathewson's essays have appeared in Guernica, Diagram, American Literary Review, Mid-American Review, Bellingham Review, River Teeth, and The Rumpus, among other publications. She has been awarded an AWP Intro Journals Award in Creative Nonfiction, as well as residencies and scholarships to Playa, Artsmith, Breadloaf Environmental Writers Conference, and Tin House. She holds degrees from University of California, Santa Cruz, University of Montana, and the Vermont College of Fine Arts. She teaches at Southern Oregon University. Please welcome Melissa. Hi, thank you everyone. This is a lovely setting. Um, I'm gonna change the tone a little bit. Um, it's not gonna be as humorous. Um, so I'm going to read uh, briefly, I think, just um, a little bit from the book, and then we're going to have a conversation, which is always nice, because um, there's always interesting things to talk about. Um, so I'm not going to give you too much introduction to what I'm going to read, um, but it does come from chapter three, um, and it sort of sets the tone for the book, uh, and I'm just going to jump in. It's uh, titled Uncoupling. I never do what I'm supposed to do. For instance, one summer when I was 10, I declared to my mother at the dinner table, I'm never getting married. She promptly replied, oh, that's not true. Of course she'll be married someday. I looked to the palm trees shivering out back to my teenage brother sulking into his plate and argued, no, I'll never get married. She waved her hand, brushing aside my disagreement in the way she often did when she thought I was being silly, childish. At the time, my father didn't live at home, but in a penthouse apartment near the beach with a lean woman whose name I can't remember. 
It's puzzling, maybe illogical, to think that even then, even in abandonment, my mother would encourage me to marry. I was a bride for Halloween when I was not yet five. I look at the picture of myself now with a sort of confused curiosity. I wore a white train with a crown of fake pink flowers atop my head, a plastic bouquet in my hands, my small body buried under layers of polyester with tennis shoes instead of white slippers to match. In the photo, a parade of costume children spiral around the neighborhood, frightened by the vampires and ghosts and tall boys with guns. The sun is as high as it should be at four in the afternoon. I'm not sure why I wanted to be a bride for Halloween. Perhaps because I thought brides were beautiful, elegant, and that's just what I wanted to be when I grew up. Swans mate for years, sometimes for life. It's an image of true love, swans happily gliding through still water. They stay together through it all, breeding, migration, death. I believed in monogamy for the 14 years I remained faithful to my husband. I believed because I was in love and thought love would always stay the same, that I'd stay the same. I believed because I wanted to belong. I believed because everyone else did. My parents divorced not long after my dinner table declaration. The day they gave us the news, my brother and I sat on identical, identical couches. A precise light came through the window into the awkward silence, the blue carpet. I remember wishing to escape to slip out the door, dip into the pool out back and swim its length and laps back and forth, back and forth, find a rhythm that might comfort me beneath the palm trees flapping shade, the bougainvillea in bloom, the agapanthus unfolding in bushy purple clumps, their blossoms like open petticoats. After 14 years, I went to shed the illusion of safety I went to feel the sensation of new desire, infusing my sexual life with experiment and attention. I don't want to follow the rules of marriage, of monogamy. I didn't have many lovers before Josh. Coming together at a young age, just 20, prevented me from knowing the possibilities of expansive relationships. I didn't understand the limitations of monogamy at 20. I didn't know myself even. A friend over lunch flippantly suggests polyamory. I tell Josh he's not sure what to think. He muses over my idea that maybe we aren't meant for one person, but he doesn't agree. He wants only me. I tell him we could stay married, take lovers, add more depth to our marriage. I say, don't you remember the Doug Fur Lounge on our anniversary, the conversation we had in the bar, who we'd sleep with if we could? Don't you remember the sex afterwards? He says, I do remember, but I don't care. He looks away, sad, aloof. I'm thinking of the promise of an open marriage, the possibility, not the risk. He asks me what I'm thinking. I don't reply. He says, you are so secretive. I create a radio show for a small station tucked into our tumbling range of peaks and hills. I'm one woman playing music in a lonely trailer. One man listens, a man I want. Others listens too, but it is only him I play for. I think of this as my way to flirt. This man, his eyes reveal a distance I can't seem to reach. His hair messy, his nature attentive and cautious, slow and subdued. He'll listen to my voice over the radio from a distance sipping whiskey or beer. I pick music just for him. I don't tell Josh. I wonder about the stories we are told as children. I wonder why no one revealed what marriage would be like, how passion would fade, how domesticity might drown your identity, how money would always be an argument. I remember thinking, I'll be different than my parents. Love will always go right. Gabons exhibit monogamous patterns, though the males tend to wander, fool around, find other females. But despite the drama, most stay, care for their children. The males sing for the females. I want a man to sing to me like the Gabon, a melody unlike any I've heard, or a man who'll write me letters, tender or violent or both, of longing, of lyric tongue, 
something to sway to, to put underneath my pillow and read after dark. I know this. I'm consumed by fantasy, by fairy tales, even though I deny their false truths, their moral messaging. So I look to animals for proof that monogamy is an unnatural arrangement. I want their stories to align with mine, to find that they wander and digress so I can say, see, I'm not wrong. All animals like to screw around. It's difficult to work out this complicated mess of biology, emotional, sexual freedom. There must be some kind of instinctive or innate justification that what's real and true is our fundamental nature to roam and multi-partner. I'd like to invent a myth of my own, a story of a new woman. She'd be kind and compassionate. She'd live without fear. She'd take walks to the pond and swim with the frogs. Maybe the children would go with her and they'd swim to or watch or laugh while smashing their faces with berries, all of their lips colored in purple juice. This woman, she'd never do anyone wrong, would never have to apologize. She'd wave at the clouds, listen to loud music, make love to a thousand men. She would be a story told around the fire even after her grandchildren were gone. French angelfish are somewhat monogamous in their social structures. It's believed that both members of the couple become jealous when another comes into their territory. I know very little about radio before I begin. I don't know how to work a soundboard, which applications transmit sound through the internet, how to talk like a radio host. What I do know is that music has the potential to communicate over a distance the thing that cannot be said. I read fairy tales to my daughter, and I want to change the endings, but Ava already believes in princesses. She imagines her marriage to a future husband, a night that doesn't exist. The morning I was to be married, I ate bacon, eggs, toast. I drank too much coffee and worried away the hours in my room that I didn't look pretty. I thought maybe Josh would change his mind about me, realize I wasn't all that agreeable. I thought I'd sweat all over the dress my mother had purchased, the cream silk with lace that was too expensive. I thought everyone would notice how the seamstress cut the dress too short, short enough to show my toes. I had never liked my feet and didn't want anyone to see them. I drink bourbon on an eight degree night and it burns my throat before it warms me, makes me dizzy with desire and love and I dream about the radio man in my bed. Imagine what he could do. It's more than a frozen night, it's a dead night. Everything is dead, the moon barely a glimpse, the ice astral. I read novels and essays and poems about women who teemed with desire, who followed their passions. I read everything I can possibly devour, the mirror in the well, a spy in the house of love, simple passion unmastered. I want validation from women in literature, like the animals, I want to be allowed to tell lies. Wolves are also monogamous, but alpha males have been known to stray. Does nature favor promiscuity? Humans can be socially monogamous, caring for our children, but also searching out other sexual partners. Same with animals, only a small percentage actually remain monogamous, if at all. Maybe they stay together for survival, seahorses stick together when the other has poor swimming skills, but their mating only lasts a season. Or their brood is so rare, they stay together for protection of their young as in the albatross. John Berger in his essay, Why Look at Animals wrote, quote, animals first entered the imagination as messengers and promises. Through animals we see the passage of our human selves from nature to culture. I wonder if I'm just looking for excuses. I read Rilke's love letters. I wish for my radio man to send me a letter. I want words like Rilke wrote to Lou Andrea Salome, a Russian intellectual in 1897. Quote, I've never seen you without wanting to pray to you. I've never heard you without wanting to place my faith in you. I've never longed for you without wanting to suffer for your sake. I've never desired you without wanting to be able to kneel before you. Do men write like this anymore? 
Salome and Rilke blurred the boundaries of love, moving between lover, colleague, protege, exchanging letters for over 25 years, their intimacy changing over time, deepening and widening. I want this to be a model for my affairs, a distant lover in another country who writes me letters I don't share with Josh. I wonder what kinds of intimacy I might cultivate with other men if it's possible to explore the depth of feeling in any number of relationships. An albatross will cover thousands of miles just to return to the same bird. They even dance for each other. I realize I don't want to be domestic anymore. I find this out 14 years into a relationship, eight years into a marriage. I don't like doing dishes. I'm not interested in how a vacuum works. I had a plan, marry at 28, first baby at 30, second at 34, and now 37 with desires that don't fit the domestic template. Instead, I want to talk late into the night over jars of beer with men whose rules aren't ordinary or conventional, men who are anarchic. Patterns, I tell myself, are for breaking. Stop there. Thank you. All right. So I called this the book of, uh, like, the love child of Cheryl Strayed and Jack London, this book. <laughs> I think it, it applies, right? Um, I love that description. Oh, good. Good. Um, how did the, we'll start with some kind of generic questions about the book and then get more into the text. But okay. um, how did this book come to be? Like, originally, did you see this? as a full-on memoir, just an essay or two. Right. Because it's a very interesting, I think that's my favorite part of this book, is this kind of striptease of a plot yes. that connects your childhood to adulthood, to yes. marriage, to the yeah. desire to be more than just this marriage, right? So yes. how did that all, did all come, come to be? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the intention behind writing the book was never to write a memoir that was kind of your typical memoir that you sit down and you read from, you know, it's point A to point B and it's chronology. It's... Mm -hmm. um, it follows a certain order. And it was always my intention to craft a book that felt a little anti-chronology and um, pushed against sort of that linear plot line. Um, and so that was intentional in all the crafting of it. And as I was writing, a lot of the, the chapters, as I see them, I think there's 42 or 46. Yeah. I'd have to look. Um, <laughs> I forget. And uh, all of them, I feel like, can be contained and as an essay, so you can read them as just their own sort of piece, but when you take them together, they do create sort of a narrative through line, an arc that tells a story about one narrator, like myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those layers of narrative um, are all intersecting in really different ways. So, I mean, there's like the marriage sort of through line, which holds the piece together or the book together and then there's this motherhood piece and there's a place aspect to it um, and music is a part of it um, and so the, all these kind of layers of identity that I was investigating through the writing process um, all sort of came together into this amalgamation of a collage really yeah. of, of work that then I was able to structure in a way that felt like a reader could go read from point A to point B, and while it didn't follow an easy chronology, they at least could know what was going on and be placed. Yeah. Um, and then the um, title, I don't know if you have a question about the title, but... I do have a question about oh, the title. Yeah. I will can hold you, off. Yeah, can you tell... Oh, no. Oh, okay. Why don't we do it? Um, okay. <laughs> can you talk to a little up to us all about what a desire line is? Right. So yeah. I was kind of looking for a driving metaphor... Um, to hold the book together and a lot of when I was submitting it before I got to its final form a lot of publishers and agents were saying it's a beautiful piece of work it's great work but there's not this narrative through line to it um, and so that's what I really struggled to write um, and get right um, in the writing process um, and then it was through listening to a song so at the time I was a pirate radio DJ and it goes into that sort of identity that I was exploring as sort of um, and I talk about this, I write, write about this in the book, is like giving your a sense of the narrator as like this rebel um, sure. who was like pushing against all sorts of norms. And so pirate radio was one of those. 
Um, and I, was, I heard a song that um, said the winter was hiding our desire line. And it, I felt it was, it was so poetic, but I also didn't know what a desire line was, so I did research. And um, it was a perfect metaphor for what was happening in my writing and in my life. Yeah. And basically the desire line, and I write about it in the preface, but it's when you're walking in the forest and you're on a trail, it's um, sort of the off the beaten track, it's the deer tracks. Um, that take you to a, a destination that's a little more direct. Um, but I use it kind of in a way of like, here is this na narrator tracing this desire line off the beaten path. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of how I came to the so title. It, so cool. <laughs> yeah. I think about it every time I see one now. And yeah. they're everywhere, right? Yeah. Like off jogging trails. or yes. There's one right by where I park. Right. You can just see like a desire path or trail. Like yeah. People continually walk it right. because and it's, it's like, more convenient. Yeah. And then I guess nature stops growing. Right. Like it yeah. kind of knows. Yeah. And they actually use it in like landscape architecture oh, okay. too now as a term. So yeah. um, it's super yeah. poetic and yeah. very much the theme of the book. Yeah. Cool. Did you worry a little bit about the structure of this book when you were putting it together in this really, I think, very interesting novel way, right? Uh -huh. That other publishers were going to be a little more conventional and go like, oh, could you just go chronologi chronologically? Yes. Or, yeah. Did you worry yeah, about that? Yeah, I mean, I worried. I mean, as a writer, what I wanted to stick to my artistic intent sure. and how I wanted to craft the book. And I didn't want to write a book that someone else told me I should do the right way or follow a certain model. Um, and so I had to just be okay with the fact that maybe I wasn't going to get into the big five publishing house in New York because I'm not telling this sensational story from point A to point B. Mm. And so I found a publisher who was willing to take a risk on like a very experimental memoir. Um, and I felt really as a first book and as um, dedicating myself to producing something that is maybe has um, can have a long-standing sort of place in literature yeah. and arts and so. letters that um, that was my hope was that I wasn't gonna I was gonna stick to my artistic intent Good which for you. Um, you know yeah. doesn't always fit sort of the major publishing True. world yeah world what they want and, and what also, they can sell it makes it so much more enjoyable to read because you get these quick bursts it reads very quickly and very powerfully and you are able to move, there's like a lot of, as the publishers call it, white space on the page because you break yeah. it up. And so it doesn't right. feel like you're opening up a Bible or something and yeah. you see, oh God. Because sometimes <laughs> essays can do that because some, there's a lack of dialogue when someone's just telling a story about what happened to them. Right. So it can feel like overly dense, yeah. right? Right. So with your book, it felt kind of light and airy even though yeah. subjects are not. But yeah. yeah. Well, and I tried to experiment too with um, like point of view. So sometimes mm -hmm. I'm, I have a few chapters in which it's in the third person point of view. So I'm referring to myself as she. And um, in those two places, it was content that was really difficult to write. So it was... Um, one is um, in which I'm detailing like the sexual relationship with another person and I needed a little bit of distance so writing it in that third point of view worked really well and then when I went to put it in the book I didn't want to change it back to the first person I just kept it in that way yeah. and then there's another chapter in which I write um, about leaving my husband and that's in the third person point of view and having that kind of narrative distance helped in actually crafting the content or the writing to what I wanted. Yeah. Um, so I experimented with that. And so it goes, at one point I did have some in the second person, but um, I took that out. Okay. Yeah. The second person's tough. Yeah, the second person's <laughs> it's tough. so tough. Yeah. Um, on page 21 you write, I am consumed by fantasy. And do you think that in general this is a little bit our problem with love? that we have yeah. a fantasy from a young age, whether it's your daughter mm -hmm. um, and fairy tales, or that we've crafted a fantasy that's almost impossible to live up to? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't, I mean, I think so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think our film, even our film, like, scripts and storylines are okay. still the romance, like, the rom-coms are, like, you fall in love and then it's supposed to stay in this like frantic state of love forever. And that's not the, tr that we're not being sold that true. It's, it's a fantasy, sure. right? How do you rectify that? I mean, you have two children, right? And, right. And so <laughs> you want to like propagate <laughs> happiness, right? Without, uh -huh. it's kind of like Santa Claus. Like I write in that poem, you know, like yeah. the Santa talk. I don't know anyone 
any parents ever been like, no, Santa doesn't exist from yeah. the early age. We all kind of propagated, like my dad would purposely lose to me in basketball or something. Yeah. There's always like little lies. Yeah. How do you kind of steer someone maybe towards a more truthful path? Or I mean, that's the, I feel like that's part of the investigation of the book. And mm -hmm. I often, I've gotten questions about whether the book is going to be an answer and it's not yeah. an answer. It's more, I think of the book as more of a question of like, how should we be in relationships and how should we live yeah. and how should we question some of these normative structures or traditional models of being in relationship that we've just kind of inherited through property keeping and history and, you know, and it's, and it's, and sold through film and story. And, um, so I think it's it's important for us to continue to grow and evolve and um, you know live in various ways is to question those normative structures yeah. and I think that's what I was really doing at that time and still do um, sure. you know and I'm still try I don't think I have an answer I'm still trying to figure out what it means to be in a relationship and yeah. multiple relationships and um, I don't have answers. No, that's fine. <laughs> No, so the Matthew. questions are more interesting than the answers often anyway, right? Right. That's so like a, a writer, that's a Rilke. I mean, yeah. he's that's that's yeah. in his letters to a young poet. Yeah. I mean, his just like live the questions, right? Mhm. Mm Cuz as far as like things have evolved so much yeah. in terms of partners and things, but love at its essence is essentially very much still the same. Mm -hmm. And so it is a kind of jettisoning of all this stuff we've been taught yeah. from a very early age. Well, right? and I think what's really interesting, what I've been thinking a lot about lately, is like we are just humans need connection, right? Like that we are social creatures that thrive off of connection. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in my experience, I've been sort of sold this model that I can only have one connection with one person yeah. for the, my entire life, and that's it. And it's actually interesting to think about how might we grow as individuals and humans through multiple connections. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm thinking about. And we also live longer than I think we used to, right? So, I mean, that's another sort of the essence of time, right? We're, and to live with one partner and for a long time, yeah, is that, is that yeah. realistic? Yeah. Just asking those questions. I don't have answers. But no, it's true. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows. Yeah. But it, it's certainly... I was just reading, like, so many more people are single now. And I was talking to Laura about this. There was, like, actual data yeah. that in 1950 or so, it was, like, 20% of America was single. And now it's, like, 53%. Oh, wow. So it's really significant that, and I, I think that's a contributing factor. Yeah. The definition of love has changed a little bit. Right. And we are do live longer and we're also not cuttlefish or whatever right. it is you know like so but there's still stigma about living is. as a yeah. single person yes, in there is. our united states culture i mean it's just there yeah. is and there's you're not valued as much as if you're partnered often it seems yeah. like so yeah your book is so honest that it made me i was very inspired to be more honest even through fiction or if i were to attempt creative nonfiction or essay writing um did you ever feel as you were writing it like, oh, I want to be honest, but maybe I should dial it back? <laughs> or, you know, because there's like levels of honesty. Yeah, right. And so did you kind of sometimes go like, oh, I'm at a 10 out of 10 honesty. I could probably bring it to a 7 and no <laughs> one will know the difference. Did you have that moment at all? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, you think about it in nonfiction. I'm crafting a persona. Mm -hmm. So there's a, it's a character. I'm the character in the book. And while it is nonfiction, it's all based on true events. Uh, and I didn't make anything up. I mean, um, obviously, there's not everything, not everything's going to be revealed. Although, my intention in writing nonfiction and why I love nonfiction as a genre in general is because I find that the personal, like that personal, is becomes universal. It's like the, the point of connection for readers between a reader and an author. And so, all the great nonfiction that I adore and that I love, all the memoirs, the the sort of um, depth of revelation and vulnerability in those books have always spoke spoken to me as um, brilliant and beautiful and connect you know a way to connect and to understand ourselves a little bit more deeply and so that was always my intention in writing was to 
if I can really confront some of the harder truths and write that in a beautiful way that a reader might resonate with, then maybe they're going to have some sort of new understanding about their own life or their own experience, or they're going to feel something, right? Because we all read because we want to feel something or connect or like understand the world in a new way. And I feel like I could only do that by really revealing some of those really hard truths yeah. and being real and authentic. Um, yeah. But I guess, you know, there's parts that, um, you know, feel hard to reveal, but, um, and like in all my study of nonfiction, like I said, um, I always loved those moments that nonfiction authors are revealing themselves in that really vulnerable way. So I used that as my model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. Um, you do such an amazing job of researching other animals. Mm -hmm. it's, in, it's like astounding. The back of the book, there's a glossary of all these terms and trees and shrubs and flowers and crops. and So just nature in general. I'm wondering yeah. how, how you got into that. Because um, you grew up in Southern California, I did right? grow up in Southern yeah. California. It's a great question. My brother's in the audience, too. Oh, so. cool. <laughs> um, I think that, um, well, I love, yeah, growing up in Southern California, I loved this the ecology of this place. And I think I have to give credit to my father, who would take us out um, all the time in the Eastern Sierra Mountains. And while at the time, maybe it was difficult as a child, I feel like that influence of being outside um, really seeped into me and um, became part of my identity. And so I've always, I don't know, even from a young girl, I was always really interested in place and landscape. And it only developed through high school and into college and um, have studied it. Um, and then uh, it sort of just evolved. And we I bought this farm with my husband. And I now can't write or be without really thinking about you know, what's around me, like mm -hmm. the physical embodiment, you know, the world um, from flora and fauna everywhere I go. I mean, just even looking at this, you know, the tree, like I want to write about that tree. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I tend, this leads into other, I think other questions you have about what I'm working on now, but, sure. yeah. um, you know, it's like, I'm really interested in the intersections between nature and the human experience and mm -hmm. how we can find answers and or understanding from nature um, that helps us as humans. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, it except does. that um, it's been a lifelong sort yeah. of development or evolution in, in loving um, place and being aware of landscape and the ecology of where I live. And it's just kind of come into my writing. And I continue. I think I'm just very um, uh, sort of situated in the, like the sensual experience of living, like yeah. through sight and touch and sound and... Um, taste and all of those things sure. and and where we are has all those you know yeah around us that's so. what I was going to say I, you live now you know in Oregon yeah so much more open space right you could even live in a place like Los Angeles now or do, would you find it claustrophobic almost or um do you like those kind of vast open spaces I think there's a lot to be said I mean I'm really curious about I love sort of the writing that explores the urban landscape mm -hmm. and the beauty of what you can find in the urban landscape because there's a lot of um beauty and nature just just outside you know sure. and um there's some great nature writing on the urban setting so I don't know I'm definitely not someone that could live in LA sure. but um I appreciate the yeah. urban setting <laughs> <laughs> well done um so a I little like the culture of the urban setting yeah. yeah yeah you know and that's really I mean it provides that yeah. And rural places don't necessarily often have sure. as much, at least yeah. in my experience in the Applegate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and staying kind of in that, in this area of nature, yeah. do you think that animals, or that we as animals, and you bring us back to that often in this book, uh -huh. um, that we're as evolved as we think we are? Just because we have, you know, we go to, we've invented like stores and cars. And, <laughs> you know, I, I just started thinking, are we that evolved? Are we. This much, we, we probably think we're so much better than an otter or something, right? But we're not that much better. And your book, as when I was reading it, I was like, you know what? We are really all in this kingdom together. I don't know if, you know, if there's like a higher power that he necessarily, he or she necessarily said, oh, man is greatest or mm -hmm. man and woman are greatest, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's probably 
something there. Are we as evolved? Yeah. And that's Do you a think deep so? question. Yeah. I <laughs> How try much to make time do deep. we have to figure that out? <laughs> there's no answer I, to this one. I but don't think there's an answer. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's aren't philosophers trying to figure that out? Well, that, when I read your book, <laughs> you said, you know, that you pose a lot of good questions. And yeah. when I finished, I was like, I don't think we are. Mm. I don't think we're as evolved as we think we are just because yeah. we invented the iPad, yeah. you know? Like that. I think we can always learn and grow. Yeah. And I think if we don't, that's that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's when things get stagnant or structures get in place that maybe breed oppression or any sort of negative sort of circumstances. So I think, um, yeah, we I think we have a long way to go to keep evolving. Yeah. I would say so too. Yeah. <laughs> what are you working on currently? What's what's maybe next? Um, yeah, I'm in that process of trying to figure out a, a, the second book. You can enjoy which is this scary. process. But, yeah. <laughs> um, every everyone I talk to who's published a book, and then and maybe you can speak to this experience. The sure. second book is the like the scary one because you've done the debut and you have all the material, and now you've yeah. got to like publish the second. <laughs> yeah, I've never. You haven't had the that same type of book okay. in a row on okay. purpose. So okay. my first one was fiction, then poetry, kids book, oh. uh, poetry, kids book, okay. and now I'm, I'm working on a novel. So I tend to just leave. Yeah. I feel like there's no expectation. If you're, if you're saying like, oh, I wrote a dark short story collection, and then your next book's about a beetle, yeah. it's like a whole different fan base. <laughs> so no one bothered me on that, which yeah. was really nice. There's like yeah. little kids asking about ice cream in the audience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Little kid readings are a really fun thing. Oh, I could imagine. Yeah. Um, so that so kind of helped me. I felt yeah. like a very different person yeah. when I do different genres. You know. Yeah. Um, well, what I seem to be writing is I, I don't think I would write another memoir. I feel like mm-hmm. I've got that for now out of me. Although I have pieces that I've written that are more memoir pieces that aren't related um, uh, to my experience as a girl or growing up. Um but I'm sort of, I think what I'm working on is more of an essay, a typical kind of essay collection. And I'm starting, I'm trying to figure out what those themes and threads are. But um, I published a few things on um, investigating like uh, notions of beauty and women and wilderness and wild. So I think cool. nature, they're going to be, it's going to be a nature essay book in mm-hmm. some way with that being a central theme to it. I wrote a piece this summer about abortion, and I was um, kind of paralleling animal abortion. Again, going to nature, animal abortions with human abortions. Um, And now I'm writing something about divorce and migrating butterflies. Mm. Um, So, you know, I'm trying, what I'm really interested in is taking some larger human experiences and paralleling those with animal and nature. Um, So I think it's going to be sort of an exploration of those things nature beauty gender yeah. um, I've got something on the feminine and the erotic not necessarily the erotic as we understand it in terms of um, sex but more of this expansion and elongation of life mm-hmm. um, and so it kind of philosophical I feel like I'm integrating I'm reading a lot of philosophy right now so cool. I'm reading Elaine Scarry's On Beauty which um, is this really short text um, and she's an, a professor on the East Coast that is a professor of aesthetics. And so oh. I've been reading a lot of, getting very interested in philosophy. So I think philosophy and nature is all going to be kind of wrapped up in this weird experimental essay collection. Well, that's fun for a reader, too, because I don't know if readers are typically reading philosophy and nature books. And, you know, so you're kind yeah. of giving everyone an education. That's how I felt when I read this book about oh. nature in general. Yeah. Because I loved reading like John Krakauer and those types yeah. of books. But right. this had a more personal element. You know, like yeah. Into the Wild is probably one of my favorite books. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he just kind of follows uh, Chris McCandless. I right, think. right. Yeah. Through this He's a journey. great writer. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah. But, and he wrote for Outdoor, right, for right. years. And, yeah. But it reminded me of almost like a, a soul, like a more introspective, soulful yeah. look at these nature type right. themes. So yeah. that would be really interesting. For I wish I could be like, I've tried sort of journalism, investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. And like, I like research and I like integrating yeah. research, but I'm not, I'm not, I, I start to go more into the lyrical. Mm-hmm. So, 
um, that is kind of the place I've found myself in. So if I can integrate sort of research and philosophy and lyrical writing yeah. um, with truth, that's kind of seems to be where I'm I was very glad following. Split Lip kind of left you alone. <laughs> because when I read this, I said there's so much beauty in yeah. just like everyday mundane things, like jarring, right? You mm. have a thing about canning, yeah. and if we could can kind of love or whatever mm, we can do, right? right. And I Capture thought it was so substance. powerful, yeah. yeah. And I said, oh, I'm so glad no one like messed with her work because oh. I feel like that's probably a thing that, you know, I, I've had editors kind of like, you know, start to poke you, and then you feel a little bit of pressure, especially first book. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'll do whatever. Yeah, you right. think I should change that? I'm yeah. just glad that that didn't happen. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, I think I have that actually here about how um, we have to kind of store things away until mm -hmm. we need them again. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that with love, with anything soulful. Mm -hmm. Are those enough th to get us through sometimes? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, and we just have to hold it Yeah. for a little while until we need it. Yes. We're sometimes I think it hurts your kind of natural growth. Mm -hmm. It kind of stunt your growth because uh -huh. you're technically just living in the past. Yeah. I've certainly been guilty of that. You know, yeah. you bottle up a moment that's perfect and you just replay it for mm. three months. Mm -hmm. And then you go like, oh, you know, for three months I've done nothing like yeah. on the surface. But yeah. I have played this movie 400 times, yeah. you know. Well, and I think in that particular moment that you're referencing, there was a moment where I'm like lying in my children's room mm -hmm. with my husband and it was like the winter time and it was this just very tender moment and so it was like how can we capture this beauty and then come back to it when we need it again um which I do like I come back to that moment frequently that moment of beauty and we probably all do that in our lives where there's these moments of beauty that we need to access later yeah. on whenever we're in struggle or in critical times yeah yeah. What this book also does is it kind of um, shows an open marriage and what that looks like as far as being like a mother as well, right? right. And we might think on the outside, oh, well, once that happens, maybe motherhood is completely dissolved or very different. But you continue to be like a very good mother throughout mm. this book. So, I hope so. <laughs> I, I thought so. <laughs> we should ask my kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you speak to that a little bit, like what that process might be like or was like for you? Yeah, I mean, we we experimented in a time when my children were really young, and um, I think what I hope is the story resonates with many women who are in this, like, sort of, who are mothers, and their identity is completely defined by being a mother, and then all of a sudden you have an experience in which maybe you're seen in a different way outside of motherhood, and that is fully like a volcano, you know, going off. It's just a huge moment, um, and that's what happened to me was that somebody saw me in a way that was not the farmer's wife. I have a chapter that's called The Farmer's Wife because I was called the farmer's wife, and so I wanted to investigate that term, like what does that mean mm -hmm. to be the farmer's wife? Or a mother, you know, and so much of, like when you become a mother, it becomes so much of who you are, and it doesn't necessarily need to be, and so I really wanted to, un, uh, you know, peel back those layers of like, I'm not just a mother, I'm not just a farmer's wife. Oh. Um, you know, there's these other aspects of to me, and so I hope that story like resonates with other women who have been in sort of those situations, and when the, in which they're questioning the nature of motherhood, sure. and yeah. but then I do, you know, then you do love your children, and they're very much a part of your life. So how do you navigate those various identities, providing love where you need it, but then also fulfilling other parts of yourself? Yeah. So often, what I felt was like I was giving myself everything to my children, and I was missing other aspects that were gone and I wanted them back. Yeah, you have that line that domesticity might drown your identity. Yeah. I thought that was something you put into words that I had never, you know, you, I had felt that, mm -hmm. but I had never had anyone put it in such a perfect phrase, yeah. right? Oh, and thanks. so you say, oh my gosh, like I think even not as much as women at all, because men, I have lots of friends who are men who got married, they still very much have their identity, but mm -hmm. it shifts a little bit. But women especially, yeah. I feel like they take on a much bigger role of this, probably, yeah. like giving up jobs, staying home. Yeah. Um, our mutual friend Kathy Bunny actually yeah. wrote a piece a long time ago that I read about how women sometimes make their uh, Facebook photo mm -hmm. their children, right? Mm -hmm. And she didn't want that. It was yeah. like an opinion piece or something about yeah. how she wanted women to keep their identity. Yeah. Right. right. Um, so well, it and it's a, ten it's a tender 
It's a tender thing to navigate. And I, I mean, I just had an occasion yesterday in mm -hmm. which I was talking with a new, a mother, a woman who is a new mother of two small children, who's also an artist. And I felt like I wanted to be really, um, I asked her about her art and her practice and she's kind of, you know, put it aside for now because she's uh -huh. got young children. Sure. But I could feel the tension there between us having this conversation. And I wanted to both have empathy and understanding, but also wanted to encourage not letting go of certain aspects of herself, which is hard to do when you have small children. But, yeah, um, yeah. I so bet. it's a real struggle, I, th mm -hmm. I think, still yeah. for, for um, mothers. I'm sure. And that line is just so profound. Um, what is your daily writing process when you're not on tour right now, but oh. <laughs> normally? Like, what does that look like? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I don't have a daily writing practice, okay. so that's... That's really inspiring, yeah. I bet, to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing. Um, but I'm always thinking about writing, mm -hmm. so if I'm not like actually in the physical space of writing, I'm always at least taking notes. So I use my phone a lot. I have the notes app. The, my phone is so useful for that. So there might be a certain thing that I see that I want to remember or even driving. Like, I don't know how, probably everybody here in LA drives a lot. <laughs> um, so driving, I tend to have so many different thoughts. And while it's not safe to actually um, be typing notes while driving, I sometimes do it. Sure. Um, or I can take voice memos, you know, if I'm thinking. But I'm always thinking about writing. I'm always thinking about what the next subject is. So that is a daily practice, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and, but I tend to write, in general, my writing process tends to be in, like, spurts yeah. and fragments, which is why so much of my writing is fragmented. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, because I don't have long periods of time to write mm -hmm. because I teach full-time um, you know, and being a mother sure. and just like life and everything. I don't have long periods of time to write. So they seem to be in like short fragmented periods. Sometimes I'll, I'll have, um, I'll be so, uh, sort of overwhelmed by something I'm writing that I, I do put everything aside to be able to finish it. But, mm. um, that's hard. That's hard to find that time. Yeah. So, and so those bursts are not even the same amount of time. Most no. of the time. No. That's admirable. But I'll get obsessed, right? So yeah. like this piece that I wrote this summer about abortion, I got mm -hmm. obsessed with getting it perfect sure. and right, and I couldn't think about anything else. Uh -huh. And so I had to find every single minute to finish it until it was done. But that doesn't happen all that often. Yeah. So it's, it's here and there in fragments. It's nice when that happens, huh? Yeah. And I sometimes know. like 3 o'clock in the morning, like I have, in, I have insomnia issues, so it seems to be that when I have an insomnia I wake up at three or four in the morning, and that's actually a good time to write. Yeah. Yeah. I've never met a writer that did not have insomnia. <laughs> I don't know something's about the yeah, brain. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't Over, know if any overthinking. Of, I don't know if anyone's ever slept well yeah. as a writer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Laura and I have a theory that like um, ninety percent of people who aren't writers are artists. That way, everyone has it, but basically. Um, they don't really invite the darkness to dance as much as maybe mm. a writer would because mm. the box has to be opened all the time, right? To, huh. to get ideas, to talk yeah. about whatever. And then after a while, the box doesn't seal well anymore. Huh. And so it starts to seep out and mostly at night. I feel yeah. like night is the time when they say, right. hey, Remember third grade or whatever it might be? Right. And that's a it. A lot occurs I, at I night. I think that's what happens. Because yeah. my father's like, oh, I have those moments. But I just say, well, that's enough of that. And I go to bed and I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, I can't do that. The no. box doesn't seal anymore. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's um, true. Yeah. That's so a you good probably, way to put it. Yeah, I think maybe that's, maybe that's what we suffer from. Um, cool. All right, I got a couple more for you. Okay. You, you answered the projects. Um, and then how has this tour been so oh. far? What have you enjoyed? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah I w was all over the Northwest in the in the fall, like Portland, Boise, and Missoula, and cool. Bend um, area, um, and then in California recently. And it's been really fun. It's been a great crowds, really good questions. I'm interested to see if anybody has questions. I think it's stimulated it stimulated really interesting conversations about partnership and marriage and motherhood and um, women sure. and feminism and all of those things. Like it's just stimulated really interesting conversations. I've met great people. Um, Good. it's been really fun. I like to travel a lot, so it's a great excuse to go places, <laughs> um, and meet people and yeah. talk about books. 
and ideas, which is what I like to do. So (laughs) good for you. And then one more kind of hard one. So you might hate me, but this book is very interesting and it talks (laughs) a lot about love and it talks and you kind of break open a lot of layers for like me. I'm I'm pretty, I suppose, kind of conventional person. (laughs) When I read this, I was like, oh yeah, you know, maybe my ideas of love are like, I'd like to say I'm like an old school guy with maybe new software, you know, but like still there's probably like some of the 1950s like in me Mm, that I'm trying mm -hmm. to get out. This book helped do that. Oh, wow. Yeah, probably. And so that domesticity line. So I'm saying basically what do you think um, we can do better with love at this point? Like if, I mean, I know that's a big question. I know you ask these questions in the book, but what do you think maybe just like, you know, small things we can improve because you did a lot of really good conversation in the book very open very honest you're always very honest right I feel like other people maybe wouldn't be so honest they would do things in more you know clandestine way that might not yield positive results I mean the first thing that jumps into my mind is to just is to cultivate more honest conversations about Mm -hmm alternative ways of being in partnership there's so much still stigma about if you're not married you can't you know these other alternative models or make people uncomfortable um and so I think that's what I would hope for conversations around love is that there's multi layers of love like there's platonic love right that's something I've been experiencing lately is um platonic love like the friendships in my life and how much that love fills me and how often we don't even consider that to be this like very meaningful at least I I I don't know I just feel like maybe that needs to be held up a little bit more and discussed more as like if you want to not be in like this married partnership model what are the various varied ways that you can be cultivating love in your life beyond just the typical model. So I think that would be what I would hope um, for more conversations about love and to stop. Like this is something I do with my children is, is especially as they're coming of age and I have one that's going into puberty and kind of growing and investigating what his sexuality is to like open the conversation about who we are as sexual beings and to stop worrying about, not talking about sex openly. And so I've been really trying to do that with my own children and um, sort of bringing them sort of expansive definitions of what it means to love Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't just need to be one way. Yeah, it is true. We love sexuality. Those things are such a huge part. If we looked at like the the pie chart of a human, those are the things we're probably the most quiet about. Right. Right. There's this kind of like, oh, hush, hush, you know? Yeah. And um, I think that doesn't bring forward kind of a lot of happiness or yeah. understanding, right? Yeah. I have had so many, I work with a lot of like younger teenage males. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me, like sometimes they open up and the questions are like so juvenile yeah. because they've been stuffing them since they were right. probably like nine years old. And yeah. so they finally have found maybe a safe space and you're like, oh my goodness, yeah. this is probably so important. Here we are talking about like multiplication all the time or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like, right. it is a little ridiculous. Yeah. 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 So. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Is there thanks. anything I didn't address that you want no, to talk about? No, I don't know if I would be interested. Oh, yeah. if Why don't we take some questions from the audience here? Questions? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Hi, Rose, right? Yeah. I remembered. <laughs> Um, I listen or relationships. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, actually I'm kind of obsessed with, um, relationship and love podcasts at the moment. Um, there's a great, um, one and uh, so there's, okay, I'm going to tell you a couple things. So a great book came out that I just did an interview with the author that was just in the rumpus. Um, her name's Simone van Sarlus and she's a Dutch author and she, her book was just translated into English this last year and it's called Playing Monogamy. I don't know if you have it here in Skylight Books. Yeah. Um, it's pub- it's from Publication Studio. It's a small press. 
Um, but it's it's sort of a philosophical book on um, investigating. She calls it multi-love, which is something that I love that yeah. term. Um, and she sort of investigates all of the kind of normative structures we've inherited in terms of relationship models. So that book has been really sort of one I've gone to a lot in the last six months. I read it twice. I keep it's really there's so many ideas there. So I go there. Um, podcast there's a multi-amory podcast that I really like um which kind of investigates all the different ways to have relationship models um that's one there's a great um a guy his name's Sean Galanos does anyone know the love drive um he's got a great if you're on Instagram he's got a great Instagram um and he he posts videos and he I feel like as a as a man, he's really redefining emotional sort of uh, maturity in terms of love. And um, I really appreciate sort of his perspective in terms of expansiveness of love. Mm. So it's called The Love Drive, Sean Galanos. He's on Instagram. Um, It's a great podcast. Um, And uh, I'm blanking on others at the moment. I know there are many. Yeah, right. And can answer questions about that with that understanding that that is okay rather than trying to steer you. Yeah. Well, I know that, um, like, in my community, because I have a number of, um, a lot of my friends are in multi-love relationships, and I know there's actually a a woman in Southern Oregon that, like, kind of uh, specializes in polyamory and open marriages and non-monogamy, and she helps... um, anybody who's going, navigating some of the difficult, challenging issues that arise from, like, balancing multiple relationships. Um, so there might be those resources here in L.A., people like therapists. That, um, and uh, and then there's, there's a lot of great books, too. I don't know if you've read any books. Like, there's The Ethical Slut was one that came out a few years ago. Um, Tristan Terramino's book, um, Opening Up. She also has a podcast um, about that, so um, she's great, and that would be another place, but I don't have anyone, I often just go to um, myself when I'm thinking about these questions, I often just go to friends um, and have conversations with them, and then I always go to literature of some sort or research, I'm always like finding the next sort of person who's thinking about these things, which is how I found Simone Van Sarlus in her book, and she's made me really think about things even deeper than I had before. So I highly recommend her, her book. Um, I need to do another read of it. It's, really, it's a really smart book. Yeah. It's called Plain Monogamy. Yeah. So, I, yeah. You can, if you Google it, you should be able to find it. It's the publication studio. Yeah. Other questions? <laughs> okay, so many. Yeah, yeah. So I wish I knew. A lot of them were dog-based. Um, I don't know why. Um, and then, yeah, there were a lot of, it's tough with those. I wanted to lead up to something more poignant. And so I had a lot of funny ones, Del Taco bathroom stuff. But there's only, like, list poems are tough. You can only get, like, 40 in there. So I start to come up with 100, and then I circle the best ones. But, yeah, I wish I remembered them. There's some in some trash can somewhere in my house. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Hi. Right. Yes. That's a great question. I get asked that question a lot, actually. Um, I got asked that question last night. So, um, to me, I've always kind of approached it 
writing from my own experience um, and making sure that I was crafting a story in which it came from my own perspective and while there are other people that are in it that are in my life and real people I I hope that in the way that I've done it I craft it in such a way that I'm being ethical that I'm considering um, how they're being portrayed um, you know originally when I um, I wrote the book and then I, I hired an outside editor to take a look because I was so immersed in the book that I couldn't see outside of it and I didn't know what was missing or what was wrong. And when she read it, um, she said there was not enough of my husband in it actually. And she asked that I write more about him and some of his reactions to the sort of my experience. And, um, and so I did and that was an interesting part of the writing process. Um, and sometimes I don't write about him in a very positive light. Um, and he's read the book, and I mean, he read it really quickly in a few hours at night. Um, and he woke me up out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and was bawling, saying how beautiful it was, and he was so happy that I had written the book, um, even though there's a lot of hard stuff in there um, that reflects his, you know, reflects our life together. Um, so with that being his reaction, to me that tells me that I, I wrote it in such a way that I was being thoughtful about the way I crafted both my experience and the people that were in that experience. And I hope the, the same goes for my children too. And I've read parts of them, um, parts of the book to them in which they're, and they always kind of smile or giggle or, you know, they haven't read the full book yet. They're not ready for that just yet. But, um, you know, it's definitely an intention and I, um, it's a it's a complex subject. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot of nonfiction writers. Just, I mean, write whole anthologies about writing about family and like the ethics of writing about family and um, how it can destroy some relationships. And it it has impacted some of my personal relations family relationships. Um, I'm not going to go there right now. I'm looking at my brother. Not, but so I mean. <laughs> Not you. He's here. But, um, it, you know, especially because I'm writing about subjects that are non-traditional. And so when, that, when, f and when family members feel uncomfortable about that. So that's definitely been something I've had to navigate a little bit with some of family members that might have read it or know about the subject that might be making some sort of judgment or mm -hmm. criticism about the content. But I always approached writing about people in my life as ethically and thoughtful as I could, and I hope that um, that comes through. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. And then with people who aren't directly your family, sometimes you, or many times you use just the first initial, right? Right, Yeah. right. So I don't reveal who is like the lover in mm -hmm. the book um, just to guard his privacy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he's read it or not, but um, gotcha. yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a very, you know, really perfect strategy. Yeah. doesn't take away from anything. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Having a name in place of that wouldn't have made the book better or anything, okay. right? So yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, to hear yeah. That. yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. That was part of it. Yeah. yeah. That was one of my questions. <laughs> forgotten. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. One, one more, more question, question is what we have here. Yes, yeah. sir. Um, Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, so no, no, no. Most of it is like, I mean, so it's creative nonfiction. So there might be slight details about place or slight little changes in dialogue that might be not to the perfect absolute truth. But all the circumstances and all the everything are based in truth. So, it I don't really see that it um, kind of goes on that border between fiction and nonfiction. So most of it is just truth. Um, maybe I had to invent um, a tree in some place at some time, but and that's the creative part of it. It's just um, crafting that dialogue and the 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 place and the scene and all that. Um, but all of it is yeah. I didn't really put any fiction into it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. That was awesome.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.